All right, good morning, Flatirons. Um, like Nate just said, we're in this series called Bad Ideas, and we're dealing with some misconceptions and some misunderstandings that we have about Jesus and who he is and what he cares about. And we're trying to set these bad ideas straight before they cause more pain in our lives than they already have. And, and I want to jump immediately in today because I love what we're talking about today. Uh, we're talking about a bad idea that I carried around for years of my life, and all it did was lock me up in guilt and shame until I set that bad idea straight. I'm praying and hoping today that like setting this bad idea straight will set some of us free like it did for me years and years ago. But I've got to give you a heads up at the very beginning in case that song wasn't heads up enough. Like today is pretty heavy. All right, and today we have a lot to cover, and, and it's, it's just something really personal that we deal with in all of our lives, and, and there's so much deprogramming that we have to do to our own minds and hearts, and so just a warning, today we're jumping right in the deep end right away. We're not going to wade into the pool. We're just jumping immediately in, and today we're basically going to have a theological discussion together. And so what I'm going to ask for is at the very beginning, you kind of buckle up, right? Because in a minute, I'm going to put my foot on the gas and I'm not going to let up until you and I get some answers together. But at the same time, I truly believe that what we're going to talk about today, if you lean in instead of leaning out, I truly believe that some of us are going to be set free for maybe the first time in our lives. So I'm asking that you buckle up and lean in because today we are talking about the bad idea, the popular belief that real Christians don't doubt. And before we even jump into that, I'm just going to pray over our time together right now. All right, so let's pray. Uh, God, I, I know what I'm about to say. I know that the truth that has set me free. God, I'm praying that it sets some of us free today. Um, yeah, God, this is just heavy, heavy stuff that we're talking about. So hold us close, um, protect us in our time together. God, uh, help me to communicate clearly. And for anything that I don't communicate clearly or communicate poorly, would you still do what you do and communicate your truth and your freedom into people's hearts? Anyway, we love you very much. Uh, thank you for setting us free. Um, and I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Okay, I'm gonna put my foot on the gas. We ready? Okay, there's two people ready. I'm just gonna do it anyway. Uh, <laughs> All right, so real Christians don't doubt, all right? Somewhere along the way, no matter who you are, you have either been taught that or you have thought that, right? Real Christians don't doubt. This is the idea that doubt is something that happens before and only before you believe. This is the idea that doubt is something that sinners do. And this is the idea that doubt and faith are mutually exclusive. Like you can only do one of them at the expense of the other. So you can either have faith or you can doubt, but you can't do both. You got to pick one. Now, the problem with this way of thinking is that every single one of us in this room either has had or currently has their own doubts. Right? You've got questions, you've got concerns, like it's okay to be honest with yourself. There are some things that are hard to make sense of when it comes to your faith. There are things that you're struggling to wrap your mind around. The dictionary definition of doubt is this, to doubt is to hesitate to believe. I think that's a great way of thinking about doubt. It's just a hesitation to believe in something. And so doubt doesn't always mean that you're like antagonistic toward Jesus, right? And doubt doesn't always mean that you've got, you like threw the towel in on faith and you gave up. It simply means that for whatever reason, and usually they're very good reasons, but for whatever reason, you're just hesitating to believe certain aspects of Jesus's life or certain aspects of your own faith. Like I said, there's usually very good reasons that we have doubts. All right, for some of us, our doubts are, are intellectual, 
right? Like we've got like these big existential questions that we want answered. Like, for, so for example, if God wants everyone in the world to believe in him, why doesn't he just like, if he can do anything, why doesn't he just show up in our house every single day to remind us? Why doesn't he do that? Or if God cares about us, then why do bad things happen to good people? And in the same way, why do good things happen to bad people? And how can I trust the Bible? Like, is it reliable? And, and it doesn't seem to line up with like modern scientific discovery. And a lot of it seems culturally outdated. Like a lot of our doubts are intellectual. Some, for some of us, our doubts come from religious baggage, right? That's, that's me, right? We, we were really hurt by people who said they were pastors. It's very hard to get over that. Many people don't. Or, or maybe for us, Christianity was exploited in our family and in our homes as like this form of manipulation or control, right? It was just a tool to try to get you to behave or to stay submissive. And so now we hesitate to believe that Jesus loves us because Jesus and grace just never went together in our homes. And then for others of us, our, our life experiences have led to doubt, it's like maybe you just have met one too many Christians who are hateful or, or you look at all the tragedy and the atrocity and the injustice of our world and it seems like your friends who are not Christians are trying to do more about it, right? And, or maybe you're hesitating to believe that God is good because you lost something dear to you. You, you lost a marriage or a career or a child. Again, for, for whatever reason, and they're usually very good reasons, we all have our own doubts, our own hesitations to believe. The problem is we're not sure what to do with them. And that's because unfortunately, typically Christians and churches are the worst places to go to with your doubts. Some of us have experienced that. I know that I have, right? You, you finally get vulnerable and you get honest about something that you're hesitating to believe with another person who follows Jesus and immediately they like shun you. Right, or they, they start acting different or it like freaks them out or they start saying stuff like, hey, just stop asking so many questions and have more faith. Right? Or people act like you've got a disease or worse, a demon. And so like you're prayed over and you're told to repent or you're just told to like go away and leave. I've been there. But Flatirons is not one of those churches. Right? I am not one of those pastors. I can't speak for everyone here, but I think that most of us aren't those kinds of Christians. And so today, this is a safe place for us to be honest about our doubts so that we can figure out what in the world to do about them. Today, we have got to set straight the bad idea that real Christians don't doubt. Now to do that, we've got to answer two questions. All right, we're going to tackle the first one first. The first question is, is it wrong to have doubts? Is that wrong? Is it unacceptable for a Christian to hesitate to believe certain aspects of their own faith? That's a very fair question. Is it wrong to have doubts? But to truly answer that question, we first have to deal with a completely different, like slightly different bad idea that props up the bad idea that real Christians don't doubt. We've got to go like all the way down the rabbit hole so that we can climb back out to the surface and fully under, understand our problem. We first have to talk about the bad idea that Christians must have blind faith. Let's unpack that one together. This idea that Christians should have blind faith, this comes from a couple of different Bible verses that are usually ripped out of context. We're going to talk about both of them today. The first and most notable verse that people use to support the idea of blind faith is found in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 1, and it goes like this. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. 
All right, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. I agree. Okay, for example, what that means is like, I have not yet seen Jesus with my own two eyes. And I don't yet know how he's going to accomplish everything that he said I could, like he promised I could put my hope in. Like, I don't know how he's going to repair my heart. I'm a mess. And I don't know how he's gonna redeem the whole world. It's a mess. Like, I haven't seen any of it, but I'm confident that I will. That's faith. Faith by nature is trust and confidence in things unseen, and every single person on earth has faith in both little things and big things. All right, like this morning I drove to work, I had faith that my brakes would work properly. I don't inspect them every single time before I get in my car, right? And right now I can't see my wife, Allie. She could be doing anything, but I have faith that she's not picking up some dirt bag at Grizzly Rose right now or whatever, right? So. That's faith. We display faith like all of the time. Okay. On top of that, every single one of us has capital F faith, like religious faith, even if you say that you don't. Some of us have placed our faith in Mormonism or Buddhism or Muhammad or astrology or politics. And then other people say that they don't have faith because they don't believe that there's a God at all. And even saying that is a great act of faith. Because even though you can't see it and you can't prove that there's no God, you believe it to be true. And so every single person on earth has faith in something or someone. As for me, I have placed my faith in Jesus. But even though my faith is trust and confidence in things unseen, at the same time, my faith is not blind faith. And that's because blind faith means something very specific. In our culture, blind faith means unquestioning belief in something, even when it's unreasonable or wrong. And I do not have blind faith. And if that's what people mean when they say that Christians are supposed to have blind faith, then adamantly I say, no, absolutely not. No one should place blind faith in anything or anyone, but especially Christians. Like unquestioning belief in something, even when it's unreasonable or wrong. Like you're not allowed to ask any questions about the most important thing going on in the world. And you're not allowed to question your faith when life gets hard or when you see other Christians acting unreasonably or when you see your church doing something wrong. Unquestioning belief in something, even when it's unreasonable or wrong, that's blind faith. You know who asks for blind faith? cult leaders and dictators. I am not interested in following either one. What I hate though, is that some Christians have adopted this idea of blind faith and they wear it like it's a badge of honor, right? As if it's honorable to never question what you were taught in that one church, as if it's honorable to plug your ears and close your eyes and hum to yourself that God is good even though you don't believe it right now because you're enduring suffering and hardship, as if it's honorable to look the other way when the pastor's acting out of line because after all, God placed them in leadership for a reason and who am I to question their authority? Listen, what I'm about to say might hurt some feelings and I'm okay with that. I've made peace with that. Okay, I know my intention. My intention is not to be mean right now. My intention is to tell the truth and sometimes the truth hurts. But here's the truth. I simply do not believe it's honorable to play pretend with your faith. I just don't. I don't believe it's honorable to deal with difficult questions about your faith by ignoring them by humming a worship song and convincing yourself to just not think about it anymore. I don't believe it's honorable to face hardship in your life with a fake smile and a fake prayer on your lips. 
Okay? If you can face hardship in your life with a real prayer and a real smile on your lips, you are well on your way. I would love to learn from you, but don't fake it. As if just because you know that God is good, that must mean that everything else in my life has to stay good all of the time. It's just not the way it works. And then most of all, I do not believe that it is honorable to blindly accept spiritual authority from any other human being. I do not have authority. Jim does not have authority. Our lead team and our elders, they do not have authority over your life. You are under the authority of Jesus Christ and Jesus alone, whether you've bowed to him yet or not. And he is the only authority that you ever have to answer to. Jim and I and any church staff, we're just supposed to be shepherds who are guiding you to your true authority, who is Jesus, which means you can dump me and Jim anytime you want. All right. And it means don't blindly accept anything that we say or we do. You want to know why so many people have been hurt by churches? It's because too many people looked the other way whenever they saw red flags or warning signs from the leadership in their church. And guess what? They called that reckless lack of discernment. They called that reckless lack of courage, faith. They said that they were just trusting the leadership that God put in place. Here is a tough pill to swallow, but it's true. God did not ordain every single pastor who has an ordination certificate hanging in their office. He didn't. Jesus is not asking for your blind faith. You're going, what about Hebrews 11? It sounds like blind faith. Okay, great question. Let's get back to it. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. If you were to go to, on to read the rest of this chapter, which you should do later today, what you're going to encounter is a list of men and women who had stand-up faith. Right? If you read Hebrews 11, it's basically like taking a tour through the faith hall of fame. Right? There's big names in there. There's names like Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, to name a few. Right? At the same time, these are all people whose stories you can go read in the Old Testament. Like their lives are literally an open book, warts and all. And so in Hebrews 11, the author basically says, faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. After that, he goes, here's a list of people who had faith like that. And he goes on to list a bunch of people who, yes, had great faith, but also had great failures and great weaknesses and great doubts. You take Abraham, for example. God promised Abraham that, that his, his descendants would become as great as a nation, even though Abraham and his wife Sarah were barren at the time. And guess what? Abraham doubted that. He doubted it to the point of sleeping with his maidservant and knocking her up instead of his wife, because maybe that's how God was going to fulfill his promise. God also promised Abraham that he would have a land of his own, but Abraham doubted that God would protect him until he got to that land. And so twice, not once, but twice, when Abraham was passing through a big city, he told everyone that his wife, Sarah, was actually his sister because she was beautiful and he didn't want to be killed so that people could get to her. He, he pimped his wife out twice, all right? He makes me look like husband of the year, makes all of us look like husband of the year, all right? You know what? Even in the midst of Abraham's great failures and great weaknesses and great doubt, God stayed true to his promise. Abraham is the forefather of God's people. He is our spiritual forefather today. He was a man of both great doubt and also great faith. And that goes for everyone listed in Hebrews 11. 
Every single one. Moses, Moses is a case study in doubt and spiritual insecurity. David, he wrote all the great psalms and songs on doubt. He wrote lyrics like, how long, O Lord, how long? And, and how long will you forget me? Are you gonna forget me forever? Solomon, Solomon most likely wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, which is like reading the personal journal entries of someone who's having a crisis of faith. Even Samson is listed in Hebrews 11. Guys, off the top of my head, I can't think of one thing that Samson did right. All right, these were all people with great failures, great weaknesses, great questions, and great doubts. And yet the book of Hebrews tells us that even in spite of all of that, they were also men and women of great faith. And so Christians must have unquestioning belief, blind faith. No, no, don't be foolish and don't play pretend. Don't place blind faith in anything or anyone, including, and this is gonna sound blasphemous to some of us, but including Jesus. He is not a cult leader and he is not a dictator. He's not asking for your blind faith. This whole like close your ears and, and plug your, your eyes and ignore the hard stuff and this whole idea of like, I don't know why I believe in Jesus, but come hell or high water, I'm gonna believe in him anyway. Like Jesus is not asking for that kind of faith from you. So stop offering it to him. He wants your real faith, your Hebrews 11 kind of faith, the kind of faith that includes all of you. And so yes, it includes, you know, putting your hope in things unseen, your trust and confidence, but it also almost paradoxically, it also includes all of your honesty and vulnerability and your frustrations and concerns and questions and yes, even your doubts. He is not asking for unquestioning blind faith, right? So we can crawl out of that rabbit hole, go back to the surface and go back to our original question. Is it wrong to have doubts? The answer is no. Look, if having doubts also disqualified you from having faith, I would have to tender my resignation today. Flatirons would board its windows and doors and Hebrews 11 would never have been written. It's not wrong to have doubts, to hesitate to believe certain aspects of your faith. And Honestly, I don't even know how or where that rumor got started. It's just ridiculous. Doubts are practically guaranteed. And I would even go so far as to say that doubt is typically, not always, but typically an unavoidable part of maturing your own faith, which I'll talk about in a second. But is it wrong to doubt? No. At the same time, is it ideal? Is it comfortable? Is it desired to doubt? And the answer is no. I've been through so many, I can't count the seasons of doubt I've been through. They're, they're tough seasons. They're often painful. They can be lonely. They can be scary because it feels like you're questioning the, the way that you view the entire world. So they're not ideal or desired, which brings me to the second question I think we should answer today, which is this. Well, so what should we do when we doubt? Right? If doubt and faith are, are not mutually exclusive, if they can go together somehow, but it's also not desired, like what are we supposed to do when we doubt? And to answer that question, we're gonna go to a different part of the Bible, John chapter 20, and we're gonna talk about a guy who gets a really bad rap because he's famous for his doubt, right? He's got a nickname that the poor dude can't shake. I wanna look at a moment from the life of Thomas who is often known as Doubting Thomas. All right, we're gonna look at the story. Before that, I'll kind of set 
the scene for us. Thomas is one of Jesus's 12 disciples, one of his best friends, right? He spent every waking moment with Jesus for like three years of his life. And it's a bummer to me that he's known as Doubting Thomas because he was also capable of great faith and great devotion and great courage. An example of that is earlier in the book of John, there's this moment where Jesus wants to go to a place called Judea to raise his friend Lazarus back from death. Uh, But the the disciples don't want him to go because the last time Jesus was in Judea, an angry mob almost stoned him to death. And so they're like, don't go back. Jesus is like, I don't care what you guys think, I'm going back. And all the disciples are trying to figure out if they should go or not until Thomas, of all people, speaks up and says, let us go that we may die with him. This dude was ready to be martyred for Jesus. He's ready to die with and for Jesus. That takes faith. That takes courage. Unfortunately, he gets a bad rap. He's known as Doubting Thomas for the story that we're gonna read today. You fast forward to John chapter 20. Jesus has died. He has been resurrected. He has revealed himself to several of his best friends who were women, and then he went and revealed himself to his disciples. But when he did that, Thomas wasn't present. And that's where we're going to pick up our story. John chapter 20, verse 24. Now, Thomas called Didymus, that means twin. He must have had a twin brother or something. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. And so naturally, all the other disciples, they run up to Thomas and they go, we've seen the Lord, like he's alive again. But then Thomas says to his friends, he goes, listen, guys, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, because Jesus was pierced with a spear to finish him off on the cross. He goes, unless I can see that and touch that, I'm not going to believe it. Thomas is doubting. He's doubting that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. You know why? Because it's hard to believe It was hard to believe just days after his death. It's hard to believe in 2023. Jesus's resurrection is often referred to as a stumbling stone, which means everyone's gonna trip over it. Some people are gonna trip over it and be able to get past it and they're gonna believe it and they're gonna walk into faith in Jesus. Others are gonna trip on it and they're just, they're not gonna be able to get past it. They are not gonna be able to believe it and they're going to walk away from faith in Jesus. Thomas is tripping on the stumbling stone. He's doubting the idea that Jesus has been resurrected, just like all of us have at one point or another. And so Thomas tells his friends, he's like, guys, listen, I won't believe it till I see it. He's basically like, what did you put in the brownies last night? You guys are out of your minds, right? Okay, next part of the story, a week later, seven days later, his disciples were in the house again. This time, Thomas is with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. He just appeared and he said, peace be with you. And then I love this. He singles out Thomas. So he walks up to Thomas and he goes, Thomas, put your finger here. Look, come, come see my hands. Reach out your hand, put it into my side. You can stop doubting and you can believe. This is intense, right? Th- Thomas was questioning. Thomas was honest about his doubts. And then a week later, Jesus shows up to remedy Thomas's doubt. How does Thomas react? He reacts appropriately. Look at this. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. In other words, once Thomas got past the stumbling stone of Jesus's resurrection, his immediate reaction was worship. He's like, you are my king and you are my God. And now here's how Jesus responds to Thomas's worship. This is the other verse that people will try to tell you. It means you're supposed to have blind faith, which is crazy to me because it's in the context of a story about a man named Thomas who's very intensely doubting the truth and integrity of Jesus's resurrection. I don't get why people say it's blind faith, but here's what Jesus says to Thomas. 
Then Jesus told him, he goes, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And what Jesus just said should be encouraging for us. Because he basically goes, hey, he goes, Thomas, you ended up believing in me because you got to see me. But he goes, there's gonna be all these other people. That would include you and I in this auditorium right now. He's like, there's gonna be all these other people who will never get to see me, but they're gonna believe in me and they're gonna be blessed for that kind of faith. It's encouraging because it means that Jesus isn't dumb. He understands our situation. He's honest about the fact that it was hard for Thomas to believe, right? Thomas, one of his disciples, his best friend of three years, Thomas, who was ready to die for Jesus, Thomas, who got to physically see the scars on Jesus's physically resurrected body. Jesus knows and admits that it was hard for Thomas to believe. And so it's going to be hard for us to believe in 2023. He knows we're going to have questions. He knows we're going to have doubts. He's telling us to believe in him anyway, even in the midst of our doubts and our questions. So Jesus knows that faith is not always easy. It's certainly not blind. Go back to our question, what should we do when we doubt? Well, we get a clue in the very end of the story about Thomas. Because the author, John, he decides to kind of add his own thoughts before moving on to the final story in the book of John, which incidentally is another story of Jesus loving and dealing graciously with someone who doubted him. But he ends the Thomas story, John does, by adding some commentary, and he says this. He says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, like these, I wrote these stories down so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, he's the son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. In other words, when Thomas was doubting, he got to see the physically resurrected Jesus. You and I do not have that option. And so John clues us in on where we can go whenever we have doubts. And he says that you and I can go to the gospels, the four biographies of Jesus's life. John says that these were written with you and I in mind, the people who won't get to physically see Jesus. He says that these were written down so that you and I, like Thomas, can believe even in the midst of our doubt. And so what should we do when we doubt? The answer to that question is seek answers. And more specifically, like John encouraged us, we should seek answers in the four gospels. And right away, I know, I, I know that there's some of us who are going like, well, that's a very convenient, like churchy answer, right? Or I know that some of us are going like, isn't that circular reasoning, Right? Like, how do I know the Bible's true? Well, because the Bible told me so. Like, I get it. I really do. I used to be in your camp. I used to be the leader of your camp. Here's the truth. I just finally realized that if I want to figure out Jesus for myself, I have got to read about him by myself and for myself. It just makes sense. If you want to discover whether or not you want to play baseball, you need to go play baseball. Right? It's not enough to turn on SportsCenter and listen to experts talk about baseball. You gotta go play for yourself. If you wanna go learn to play guitar, you gotta go buy a guitar and take lessons. You can't just sit and listen to other people play guitar. That's not gonna help you. You gotta get out there and play for yourself. In the same way, if you want answers to your questions and answers to your doubts, or if you want to discover whether or not the life and way of Jesus is worth following for you, then you have got to stop taking my word for it. 
and taking Jim's word for it or taking your friend's words for it. And you've got to stop basing your faith and your worldview off of the latest hippest podcast on the fall of Christianity or whatever. And then on top of that, here's the one that took me forever to get over. You've got to stop pointing your fingers at other hateful Christians and churches and saying that they're the reason you have doubts and they're the reason that you won't follow Jesus. Listen, I also do not like hateful Christians and churches. I got a lot of baggage there. At the same time, I do not respect that as a legitimate reason for throwing Jesus out the window. It's lazy and you know it. If you want answers to your doubts, go play for yourself. Put some skin in the game and specifically let Jesus speak for himself so that you can decide for yourself whether or not you're going to follow him. Don't rely on authors or podcasters or pastors like me to tell you who Jesus is and what he's all about. Go and read the thing for yourself. Go see what Jesus says about himself. Go discover what was important to him. Let Jesus speak for himself. And the truth is that Jesus speaks for himself most clearly and most accessibly through those four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, at the very beginning of your New Testament. If you had questions about your health, I would point you to the doctor. If you had questions about the best restaurant in town, I would point you to a magazine or point you to Yelp or whatever. If you got questions about World War II, I'm your man. I've got books. I've got podcasts for you, all right? If you have got questions about Jesus, go let Jesus speak for himself. I'm not even saying that seeking answers in the four gospels is gonna make every single person in the world a follower of Jesus. I wish it would. It just doesn't work that way. It's not gonna happen. I'm simply saying that if you genuinely want to figure out Jesus and if you're serious about wrestling through your doubts, then stop relying on preachers like me or podcasters or deconstruction bloggers or whoever and please let Jesus speak for himself. Seek answers through the four gospels. That right there, as churchy as it sounds, is hands down the most life-changing thing I have ever done. I, I resonate, I genuinely resonate with anyone who's honest about their doubts and say they have questions. I'm, I'm, I resonate with people who say that they're deconstructing because I did that for 10 years of my life. It was just before deconstructing was like a cool term that was in vogue, but I, I deconstructed. Like I decided to take no one's word, especially pastors, when it came to faith and Jesus. And I decided to let Jesus speak for himself. So I started digging into my Bible and I was fully prepared to walk away from everything if I didn't like what I found. But then looking back, whether it was a happy accident or what I believe, a blessing from a God who loves me very much, whatever the reason, I dealt with my doubt in the right way, which is to say I was honest about it I didn't run from it and I didn't ignore it. And then on top of that, I sought answers by letting Jesus speak for himself. I read those four gospels over and over. And I came in hot with questions, right? It's like, the Bible says one thing about creation. The rest of my world says that we evolved and that one seems to make more sense. I got questions. Let's see what Jesus has to say. And then as I would read the gospels, it felt like Jesus was saying, hey, we'll get to that at one point. And he did in my life, by the way. But he goes, we'll get to that at one point. But for now, the more important thing is, what do you think about me? And I, I went in going like, I, I can't stand church. I, I can't stand most Christians. They're hateful and they're hypocritical and they're judgmental and they're backstabbing. Let's go see what Jesus has to say about that. And it felt like Jesus was going, we'll get there. We really will. What do you think about me? I finally just let him speak for himself. And for me, the result was after 10 years 
of kicking and screaming. Like I fell in love with him. He's amazing. Like I, I finally realized for myself, most of my problems are with church and hypocritical Christians and religion. I found out for myself, I don't have any problems with this man. I love who he says he is. I love who he says I am. I love what he cares about. I love who he cares about. I love how he cares about them. I fell in love with him. And so there was this moment where I'm in uh, Canamine Coffee, which is on Public Street here in Lafayette, and in front of a bunch of people, which is kind of embarrassing, I just like broke down. And I reached this moment where I finally told him, I was like, you can do anything you wanna do with my life. You can have 100% of my life if you would just please, please, please resurrect me. Like you were resurrected. Flatirons did not save my life. No pastor saved my life. No book or author or podcaster saved my life. Jesus Christ saved my life and he did it as soon as I let the man just speak for himself instead of let pastors tell me what Jesus was trying to say. Saved my life. Seeking answers in the four gospels was the best thing I have ever done with my life. And to this day, I don't know who I would be without the gift of doubt in my life. It's a gift. I believe that. It drove me to seek answers. It drove me to seek Jesus. I don't know who I'd be today. I'd, I'd probably be an atheist. And because I'm very convicted, I'd have to be a nihilist. I would either be that or I would be one more blind faith Christian lemming. So I gave my life to Jesus. You fast forward 14 years from that moment. Here I am today. I'm a pastor, which would just kill college Ben. He would be so mad. <laughs> Couldn't believe it. Um, I'm a pastor now. I'm a teacher. Today I'm teaching on doubt. And guess what? I still have questions and doubts. I still haven't found answers to some of the original questions that, that I had. I still have things that confuse me. I'm still untangling bad ideas about Jesus that I picked up from my youth. In fact, if you've been going here for a while, you know, almost every single sermon I have ever given, it's in the hundreds now, almost every single one starts with a question that I genuinely have. Today, is it wrong to doubt? Last week, is Jesus a killjoy? Three weeks ago, why chase after wisdom if it doesn't seem to make a difference all the time? Like, I have practically made a living out of questioning my faith and then trying to find answers. I'm not that guy. I didn't go to Bible college. I'm not up here regurgitating a bunch of stuff that my seminary professor told me that I have to come and tell you. I'm just a normal person like you who's trying to figure out my faith. I have got questions about Jesus. It just also happens to be my joy to go seek the answers and then share what I'm learning with you. I'm just finally at this place in my own faith journey where I can resonate with the words of this one guy from the book of Mark when he walked up to Jesus and he goes, Jesus, I do believe, like I believe in you. Help me overcome all of my unbelief. I'm at a place where I have faith in Jesus. My trust and confidence are in Jesus. And so I can also trust him to help me figure out all of my doubts. I empathize with those of you who are doubting. And I empathize with those of you who are deconstructing. In fact, the only thing that makes me sad about this like deconstruction surge right now is the people who are asking, like you're asking great questions. You're asking fantastic questions, but you're not seeking answers. As only, it makes me sad because like from personal experience, I know it's not enough to just be pessimistic and challenge everything. That's actually not bold and brave. 
And I know from personal experience that like, it's not enough to throw a fit because you grew up with a bad church experience. Join the club. There are millions of us carrying around those wounds. I guess I'd say if if you're really wrestling through doubt and you're wrestling through deconstruction, here's the thing I would beg you to hear right now. Like, please at least follow the logic that it would be foolish for you to trade blind faith in Jesus that you grew up with, to just trade it for blind faith in the latest podcast you listen to, blog you subscribe to, or book you read. Please, I'm begging you, even if you don't end up following Jesus, at least look for answers to the questions about Jesus in the right place, which is seek answers in those four gospels. For those of us who are walking through doubt right now, there's two things that I hope you take away. The first thing is, it's not wrong that you have some questions. If you, had, if you didn't have questions, I'm worried. You're not, either not being honest with us or you're not being honest with yourself. It's okay to have questions. Right? You, they're not mutually exclusive. Doubt is part of your faith journey. It's like you can stop worrying about whether or not you're going to go to hell just because you got a couple questions about the existence of life. It's okay. You can be set free from that guilt and shame. And the second thing I'd love for you to take away is it's also not enough to just live in the questions. Go seek answers. No more excuses. Right? A, lot, a lot of you bought that study Bible back when Jim challenged you to, and it's still crisp and clean, and there's not a single wrinkled page in the thing. It's time to go put that thing to use. Right? For others of us, there are free Bibles at the back of every single one of our campuses. Please go take one. Take one home. No more excuses. Just don't run from or ignore the questions that you have. Doubt and faith are not mutually exclusive. It's part of your faith journey. Jesus knows that. He's strong enough to handle it. And I know from personal experience, he will love you deeply, even in the midst of your doubt. And so ask great questions and then go seek answers in the right place. Let Jesus speak for himself. And if you do, you might look back one day like I can and see that your doubt was this very painful, but very beautiful gift in your life because it drove you not further away from Jesus, but more deeply into his arms. And so flat irons, face your doubt with courage and with honesty, because it very well could be the greatest thing you ever do with your life. Let's pray. God, that, that is a, that's a freeing truth, but at the same time to talk about it, it's just heavy. We got to There's some of us in here that we have had questions about you and questions about our faith and we have kept them bottled up and locked up. We've not told a single soul and it's because we're just afraid people will treat us differently or we're afraid that once we speak it out loud, then you're gonna stop loving us or we're afraid that we won't be able to come back to church. There's all these reasons that we just keep these questions like locked up inside of us. God, set us free. You already know the questions that we have. You're just asking us to come and ask you and to come let you speak for yourself. God, please set us free from this ridiculous belief that to follow you, we're not allowed to have any questions. That is not the kind of leader you are. You're just way better than that. You're way more beautiful than that. God, even in the midst of that, even though that should set us free, I just know that that the questions that we're all individually wrestling with, most of them are because of some really hard life experience that we've had. So God, I pray that throughout this next song, as we sing about the fact that you're our living hope, God, would you make that true in our hearts? 
God, as, as we've had to sit for the last 30 minutes and be forced to kind of look at the doubts we have and, and the experiences that we've had, God, would you give us peace? Would you remind us that you love us no matter what? God, thank you for being God who's good enough and strong enough to let us believe in you, even in the midst of our unbelief. We believe, please help us with our unbelief. And I pray this in the name of your awesome, beautiful son, Jesus Christ, amen.